Welcome to In Our Hands, a podcast about the challenges and opportunities presented by the climate crisis. Each week, we interview a new thinker at the front lines of the battle to save our planet. Hello, everybody. I'm here today with Lighty Klotz, who is the Copenhagen Associate Professor at the University of Virginia. His research is filling in underexplored overlaps between engineering on the one hand and behavioral science, and that is in the pursuit of more sustainable built environment systems. And we're going to talk about that in a second. His next research-based book, which I am widely excited to read, is Subtract, which comes out in April 2021. It'll be the second time I've read it because I had a preview of it. Lottie, I'm going to just kick this off. One of my goals in these short interviews is to humanize science. Can you walk us through your life and your career and what led you to make the career choices that you have? And there's a very interesting twist in your story, given your background involving a sport. And I'd love for you to tell us about that as well. Great. Well, yeah, thanks, Ramanan. I'm thrilled to be here. And um, I'm thrilled that you asked this question about humanizing science. Um, For the first 22 years of my life, I would say my career was soccer. That was what I cared about. I knew that I'd eventually want to kind of make impact in other ways, but I knew that that was the only time I could play soccer too. So, I mean, soccer really was the main thing I was engaged in growing up. It drove my decision where to go to college, um, drove my focus in college, you know, soccer, not necessarily academics. And then after college, I played professionally for a couple of years. Um, I was, you know, making $2,000 a month. So it wasn't a, an end of, uh, it was nice for a post-college job, but it wasn't, it was pretty quickly obvious that it wasn't going to be a long-term thing that I was able to do and not ever do anything else, which was fine. I mean, that was never the, never the intent. Along the way, I did, while I was playing soccer, I did manage to get a, an engineering degree. I went to Lafayette College. After I got done playing soccer, I got a, a job working in engineering, mainly to, to pay the bills. And that's really when I started to think about making a difference. So it's fun when I talk to students now who are you know, in their second year of school, and they're already kind of thinking about this stuff that I didn't start thinking about until I was already graduated. So I, I tell them that it's it's okay that they don't have it all all figured out yet. But then once I started thinking about making a difference, I'd, I'd always cared about the environment. My dad's a biology professor, retired biology professor. My mom, she went to college in Vermont in the 70s. So um, there was plenty of kind of environmental leaning in my house. And when I started to think about like, okay, how can I make a make an impact with climate change in particular being the the biggest environmental issue of my lifetime, I feel like. I thought, well, maybe I'm going to need to switch away from engineering and maybe switch away from this focus on the built environment. And as I was thinking about that, I realized the the size of the impact of the built environment. So my work job was um, I was building schools in, in New Jersey. And you know, when we look at, obviously schools are a good thing to have, but the, you know, when we look at the overall kind of amount of energy use worldwide and, and in the United States, I mean, it, roughly half of it is coming from our, our buildings. So this is an energy use, as your listeners, I'm sure know, correlates almost exactly with emissions. So a huge opportunity here to, a huge contributor to emissions, but also a huge opportunity to do better. Buildings, we know how to do net zero energy buildings, and we know how to do them in ways that aren't necessarily more costly. And so there's just a big gap between the what's possible and and what we implement. And 
I do more than just buildings. I'm interested in the built environment as a system, you know, the buildings and how they connect to the roadways and how you and I are interacting today, even. Um, I, I feel like that's kind of part of the built environment. And so that's how I've kind of come to this this focus in my research of, you know, merging this, maybe I've left the soccer behind, I would say, but merging the um this built this view of the built environment with, you know, how can we close the gap between what's actually happening and what's technically possible. Got it. Thank you for that. And we, you know, we're gonna explore, we're gonna explore your research next. So your work and the founding of the Convergent Behavioral Science Institution explores this intersection of human behavior and engineering especially as it relates to climate change and reducing environmental footprint. It's pretty interesting. You know, a lot of research, and including our focus as a venture firm at iMeja, is around end-use behavior of individual institutions. And as I often say to people, you can't really solve for end-use without thinking about what led up to that point, and your work targets the underlying design. And so, broad question, and you can answer any way you like, including anecdotally, how does engineering and design influence end user behavior or end use behavior, rather. One of my go-to examples is a light switch, but since you, before the meeting, you moved the shade behind you, right? I right, did, right. Was that a switch or was that you just moving it automated? That, that was sadly a switch. That was a switch. Yeah. Well, that's fine. I mean, so that's a perfect example, right? Is that this, one of the things that happens when you bring that shade up is that there's less lighting energy required to, to film this video. You might also put it down in times when there's a massive amount of solar gain that's coming through the house that you would have to like offset through air conditioning. So at some point, the position of this shade can make your environment more or less sustainable. There's a designer who decides whether whether there's a shade there or not or not and how you use it. Right. So we'll see these, the light switch example, right? You can have a light switch and you'll have a, a picture next to the light switch or a reminder, turn this off when you leave the room, but you can also have automated lighting that helps people turn things off when you, when you leave the room. So I think that's one example, right? Is in the general category there is you can kind of automate these more sustainable behaviors through design. That's great. I think the, you know, the thing that I'm really interested in and in our institute or um, the Convergent Behavioral Science Institute's motivation is how can we like make new behaviors possible by merging design and behavioral science? And so, and you actually brought this up in our preliminary conversation, Ramanan, that the impact of Zoom on sustainability, you know, and we can talk about whether or not it's a good or bad thing for every individual meeting, but there's no question that it's this technology that designers and engineers came up with has made new behaviors possible, right? So it's not just automating sustainable behaviors, but you're changing the whole system for how we how we interact with each other. And so right now, this conversation that we're having that, you know, maybe before I would have had to fly to California, you would have had Correct. to come to Correct. Charlottesville is happening. Correct. And once it's had, you're going to put it out there and it's going to get to a whole set of other people. So I think that, you know, I totally agree that end use behavior is important, but the design behavior has been kind of overlooked and, and understudied and is, is really influential. I mean, these, if you can automate sustainable behaviors, that changes behavior of a lot of end users. And if you can make entirely new behaviors possible, that's kind of what it's all about, right? Great. And we may come back to that a little bit before we finish. So a common perception, and you know, this builds on the response that you just gave, a common perception is 
sustainable design comes with higher costs or loss of other benefits. What's the best way we can counter the idea that sustainability is kind of a, that it's always a zero sum game. There's always a trade-off. How do we counter that idea? Yeah. Because you just, you just gave me a great example with Zoom, right? Mm-hmm. Where we could have we could have just stopped at the sustainability effect of a, a virtual meeting being obviously much better than a physical meeting. But you went ahead to point out one of my favorite points, which is you know these virtual calls open up options that never existed before in, mm-hmm. in human life in human civilization. Yeah, you know, the idea that we could record it, that we could share it. So anyway, coming back to the question, how do we counter the idea that sustainability is a trade-off? Yeah, you pointed out some really important things in it. I wish there was an easy answer, quite frankly. I mean, I I feel like this is one of the learning outcomes for the class I teach, and it takes the whole semester to get there. I mean, I mean, one of the things that's important, I think, is just having the baseline definition of sustainability that, you know, you're working really hard to get out there to people. And, you know, it's fundamentally about meeting human needs now and in the in the future. Once you kind of understand that it's about human needs and how the environment overlaps with that, then you can start hitting people with the examples. I feel like, so, you know, in the built environment, I'll I'll talk about, okay, but this building that doesn't have floor tiles, for example, it just has the finished concrete floor. I mean, that's a really kind of trivial example, but it doesn't have floor tiles. It's more sustainable. You didn't have to disrupt as much material and it's just as good and cost less. (laughs) And then using the Zoom conferences example too is another one. So I think kind of hitting them with the the definition and then the examples is is one way to break it down. And then being aware of kind of two of the traps that we might fall into that you alluded to, right? You said zero sum game, right? And so this is one of the thinking traps we fall into is like trying to resolve contradiction when it's not actually there. And so like a lot of times we want to say, okay, if this thing is true, then this other thing is not true, but right. sustainability is not like that. It's not, no, a, it's not, it's not a zero sum game. These things aren't in conflict. And then the, you know, you framed it in terms of the things lost. And that's just something that we know from behavioral science is, is a challenge to get over in all, you know, losses loom larger than gains, right? So the thing that we've lost, we weigh more than the the thing that we've gained. And so when it comes to Zoom and conference travel, that time in a, <laughs> if you miss the time in a hotel, for example, I don't know who, who would miss that, but maybe some people miss that, that lost hotel stay or the lost restaurant visit that you got to go to kind of looms larger than the, than the time you gained with your family or your friends by not traveling. I mean, with those mental traps, those are just things to be aware of. I also think that maybe the pandemic, you know, that's something that it is kind of, shifted us out of. And now that we've seen that we can interact like this on Zoom, if we go back to the way it is, then we've kind of shifted what's the loss and what's the gain, which might help with it. But I mean, the bottom line is, I don't know. I mean, I would love to take this on as a, as a research topic, maybe for some of our next study is how, are there like things we can do that are kind of shortcuts to turn off this perception of trade-off, but for now it's education and examples. Yeah, I mean, there's no question just to amplify what you just said, that the pandemic has revealed to us that a lot of the things that we viewed as immutable laws are just norms. Right. And, you know, even for me, you know, I've just gotten used to the idea of incessant travel in my day job um, in BC. And it turns out that I don't really need to do that much of it. How much do you think will come back? Like what percentage? 10 to 20%. Wow. I mean, I have found the light. (laughs) 
I have seen the light. You know, it's just, you know, you, you just, you, like you said, you have more time to annoy the hell out of your family. <laughs> you know, you have, you have given yourself the gift of time. Mm-hmm. And I think, but not everyone is in that position, right? I speak from a position where, you know, I, I own my own business. I'm an entrepreneur. And so I have more control over my life. You know, for someone who doesn't have that control, I think that person can be pretty intentional too. But in other ways, and it may require, so I think weird things are going to happen here in a free market, so to speak, which is, I think employers who offer remote lives are actually going to really prosper. They will get the best people, in Mm -hmm. my view. But it's going to take a decade for all of this to play out. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, you know, work for a a university. So I, I mean, I have a ton of intellectual freedom, but it's not my own company, but I do feel, you know, I think that it's the same 10 to 20% number for our work-related travel. And I do think that we have, you know, it's not where we can just stop going, but I do now have a, an approach that I can take next time I get invited to a conference, which is like, Hey, can we, maybe we just zoom and see if this, you know, warrants an in-person meeting. And so, yeah. I think a lot of conference providers I mean, it's very complex, right? Because mm-hmm. there are other benefits to being together in person somewhere. But a of lot course. of conference providers are realizing that a virtual conference format does, in fact, unleash options that never existed before. Mm-hmm. You know, how subgroups can come together. And so anyway, we could spend many hours on this. I want to get to question four, okay. which yeah. is your work uh, doesn't concern just environmental sustainability, you've also published extensively about how to inspire students from diverse backgrounds to pursue careers in engineering and the environment. This is an issue that's near and dear to me, me as well. Can you shed some light on why, how the connection between the environment and design can serve as a means to broadening participation, diverse participation, and what value you think will arise from that? Mm. Yeah, I'm so glad you picked up on this strand of my research. I mean, it's it's something that I'm really proud of and um, proud to have been working on for at least a decade kind of studying this. I mean, one of the things to understand is the context, right? Engineering is about 20% women which and very few racial and ethnic minorities. Um, yep. and, and architecture is just as bad. And this is, I mean, it's horrible. It's it, And it's rooted in the same structural sexism and, and racism that's you know, we're finding in our other systems and that people are, are waking up to. So, I mean, we need to change that. And, and a lot of, I think, engineering realizes that, architecture realizes that. Um, and one reason it's especially damaging for society is it just simply limits the range of ideas. In addition to just being unethical and against everything our society stands for, it limits the range of ideas that get out there. I mean, we just talked about how important design is to end use behavior. Well, if you've only got a certain group of people doing designs, that's going to limit what you view as possible. And so what our our research has found and other people are working, doing great work on this too, is that engineering has a high level, ends up attracting a, a high percentage of people who are interested in things versus people who are interested in in people, right? Um, and that's, mm-hmm. you know, kind of boiling down a complex thing to a simple statement, but you get the idea. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, the whole point of engineering, right, is to, and the the human focus definition of sustainability is to serve people. And so engineering is missing out when it fails to highlight how what it does connects to what 
people care about and making people's lives better. And mm -hmm. the environment and climate change and social justice issues is kids want to work on these things. They, that's what they're passionate about. Yeah. Nobody's sitting there saying, well, some people, I guess, are sitting there saying I, I'm really passionate about a, a widget. But for the most part, they want to work on these big social issues that they're hearing about. And so climate, what, connecting the environment and design, you know, kind of reaches a broader audience in our messaging. Now, part of that, I think is, you know, so part of the thing we need to do, right, is make that message clearer to students, but that's not the end of it. I, I really worry that, you know, we can't just, we also have to make it true. <laughs> so we can't say, oh, you're going to get to be an engineer and you're going to get to work on climate change and social justice and then put them into four years of training where all they do is calculus and differential equations and Absolutely. physics. Um, I, of course, those things are important, but we also have to kind of infuse these other things into the curriculum so that the messaging is actually true. You can, in fact, change the world through engineering, which is such a silly message to have lost over the over time, and then help show them how to do that through their training. Got it. Thank you for that. And then, you know, it is an issue near and dear to me as well. Okay, well, we'll go to question five, which is topical, also an issue that really moves and drives me and relates to your new book. So much of sustainable engineering is focused on creating new things. And I'm in the business of venture capital, which is all about disruption and innovation and driving change. In your new book, you discuss the value of reforming our cities and lives by just reducing and redesigning what we already have. And so what can you tell us about the importance of subtracting, not adding from our societies and our everyday lives? Yeah. While I'm thinking about it, I mean, you asked about the, dis the disruptiveness and I would argue that subtracting can be even more disruptive on a uh, well put, on, well put. On, an, I, on an absolute basis. I, I, I retract that word. <laughs> you don't have to You're retract right. it. I would just, but uh, yeah, just taking it to simple numbers, right? If you've got this, if you have the number three and you subtract one from it, you've changed that more than if you add one to it, right? You've, right. You know, right. So <laughs> anyway. And again, there's nothing wrong with adding. It's just, you know, what we found in our research. And oh, let me back up a little bit. I mean, what I love about this topic, subtraction, is that it's kind of in the same vein as the, the trade-off issue with sustainability, is that this fundamental kind of thing that's happening in our brains that's influencing the overall sustainability or like how we're pursuing sustainability. It's a perfect example, I think, of why sustainable design and behavioral science need to be considered together. So what we found in our research, and this is going to, there's a nature article that describes the research. And then my book goes into way more kind of detail and explanation of why it's happening and what it means. But what we found in our research is that presented with a situation that people want to change, whether it's grids on a computer screen or a Lego structure, miniature golf holes, itineraries, we didn't try, we didn't do it on venture capitalists yet. So I don't, you, you're off the hook. But presented with these situations that people want to change, their first instinct is to think, what can we add to this thing? And right. not necessarily a problem, but the problem becomes once they get to a, a good enough additive solution, they can move on, which causes us to overlook subtraction. And 
okay, Lego studies grids on a computer screen. But what's neat about this is it's arguably the most basic design decision, right? You're presented with this thing. What's your first thought to do? And we're systematically biased to adding. And we do it even when it results in coming up with the wrong answer. So, you know, extending this out to social implications, right? You know, if we're overlooking subtraction, you know, is it causing us to miss out on removing highways that are bisecting neighborhoods? Is it causing us to overlook removing CO2 as a solution to the climate crisis? And, and again, you know, just this fundamental decision process isn't the only thing that's kind of influencing all these global things, but it is part of it. Removing tripped is the way to make things better. So that's the premise of the paper. I mean, what I like about it in the context, I think, you know, your audience would appreciate this is that, you know, one of the I think legitimate tensions in sustainability is between limits and growth, right? So it's like there's very real planetary limits and so infinite growth on a finite planet is is impossible. But, you know, it's not really about growth, right? We're what we really want is I assume is infinite progress maybe. And progress can come through adding, but progress can also come through taking away. So it kind of helps resolve or alleviate this basic tension that's there as it relates to sustainability. Does that make sense? I'm, it does. Yeah. It does. And I, you know, I think for me, as you know, it, it actually relates to some of the other things we've talked about today. Uh, you know, the idea that, you know, the, a lot of the addition that goes on in our society is a norm, right? Mm-hmm. If you have X, well, then of course you should then add Y to it and aspire to Z, right? right. Even though there wasn't a whole lot of things wrong with just staying at X, right? right. And so there's a, just a set of assumptions there. And when these assumptions about addition bleed into the physical world, you're then talking about adding things, right? You're adding physical objects and it's a finite planet. You know, the adding has to stop. Yeah, that's great wording when these things bleed into the physical world. And yeah, I think, and you know, it's not the only factor, right? You know, there's economic forces and there's cultural forces pulling us to do this. And sometimes more is better, again, to be very clear about that, but that there's this kind of fundamental thought process that's causing us to overlook an entire category of, of change is really, really interesting. And I think really relevant to our pursuit of greater sustainability. I interview scientists such as yourself every month, and I love all my scientists just to be clear, uh-huh. but this was just super interesting and super relevant to what I do for a living. And also, frankly, my way of thinking about the world has evolved to this to many of the same things that you do research about. I want to remind my audience that your book is out next month. It's called Subtract by Lighty Klotz. And I want it, Lighty, I just want to thank you for spending all this time with me. Yeah, thanks for asking me. And those other scientists are some of my heroes. So um, I, I love what you do and I appreciate, I watched Karen Sato's talk and um, anything you can do to amplify the voices of people like that is, is amazing. So thanks for having me. And I learned a ton too. Awesome. Thank you for listening. Please email us at climate at amasia.vc with any suggestions or ideas and visit inourhands.earth 
for the full transcript of this podcast and other information. 